Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit DesenioDaily.com. We hope you enjoy the programme. Today in this podcast, we're going to be looking at the effect of physical environments on mental processes and how the spaces we find ourselves in shape the way we think and perform, particularly in relation to office design. I'm delighted to be joined by the neuroscientist, Dr. Jack Lewis, as well as Michael Held, a design director at Steelcase. So Jack, maybe we'll start with you to get a little bit of background. Traditionally, in Western thought, you have this idea of dualism where the mind is something very separate to the physical body. And obviously that viewpoint has taken a lot of hits over the years and has been rightly challenged. But maybe you could give us a contemporary perspective from the point of view of neuroscience. How much are our mental uh, processes shaped by our physical environment and the body? Very much so. So the idea of the brain being separate from the body was kind of useful as a thought experiment, if you like, for designing experiments to get us started. But as the years have rolled by, particularly in the last couple of decades, it's become increasingly apparent the way our, the position of our bodies, our postures, our facial expressions, feed back into the brain and then affect the way we think and the way we feel. And Michael, obviously, this is of key interest to you. It's still case you're in the business of creating office environments. They're high-performance spaces where people need to work and need to perform to the best of their abilities. So what's your interest in this field? I think at the end of the day, we're social animals. We can all be in different places around the world and try to collaborate over video, but we've noticed, and I think research also shows, that, that people have to build trust. You have to build a certain relationship, and people also need social connection. Old people that are lonely die earlier than old people that have like a, a rich life in a society around them. And so coming to the office, being together with other people and collaborating together face to face is something that we definitely believe in. And it's one of the most important things to consider around um, designing spaces for work, for people to come together and to collaborate. What's the current reality of those spaces? Because in the 20th century, I think people still have the horror story of cubicle culture, right? Where you're very sealed off from everyone else. It's an extremely repetitive environment. What's the current thinking around how we ought to structure offices? I think there's no right answer. There's no one-size-fits-all. And I think you mentioned cubicles. The problem with a lot of these um, trends in retrospect is that I think the pendulum always swings a little bit too far. Too many people doing the same thing too much and perhaps not creating enough diversity in, in the spaces they create. The office and, and uh, administrative culture has been built alongside factories uh, during the industrialization, and that work was very linear. So we handed over things from one to the other to the next one. And the more we started to collaborate over the last decades, the needs in the office have changed dramatically. But today, a lot of people are still tethered to their desk or have to choose between a desk and a meeting room. There are not so many spaces that are flexible enough to really provide individuals and teams the ability to shape the space according to the need at that moment. And I think this is where probably the trend is going to spaces that are more adaptable to give people more choice and control over how they work. 
Jack, how do those spaces affect mental processes? If you're very static, if you're in a very monotonous space, doing the same thing over and over again, not moving around so much, what's that going to do to your to your mind? Your thought processes reflect that. Thought processes become a little bit more sort of stodgy. You'll be more constrained. You'll be more narrow in your viewpoint and perspective. Whereas the more you express yourself physically or the more the space you're in enables you to express yourself physically, then it'll actually broaden your perspective in terms of the way you consider the problem at hand. So there's some really interesting work that's emerged over the last 10 years that looks at how, for example, gesturing, when you move your hands around in space, that helps other people to understand where the emphasis is. You can do it with your voice, as I did just then when I said emphasis, but when you've got it, when it's an audiovisual impact on the other person's perception of what you're saying, it means the same words that you've uttered, were you to say read them on a page, are interpreted very differently from if there was no inflection in voice or in terms of gesture. The more you have the freedom to gesture as you communicate, it also frames the way you think. Do we have something of a cultural problem then? Because at least in the 20th century, so much of work is built around this idea of Taylorism, right? And you get efficiency by people being very static, doing a task over and over again. And everyone can relate to this to an extent. If you want to look busy at work, people sit and crouch over their laptop, type furiously. The idea that maybe getting up, moving around, chatting with people... um, might actually lead to greater efficiency. I think a lot of people that's counterintuitive to. 100%. And it also depends on what your role is. If you're a mathematician trying to crack a problem which relates to, I don't know, a piece of computer code, which will ultimately help others (laughs) communicate better with each other because there won't be so many glitches and bugs, then under those circumstances, you do need to be crouched over and focused and undistractable, if you like. Like hunching over can narrow your field of view, it can help you cut off your attention to, to, to what's going on in the acoustic world around you, and it can help you to focus. But in other roles where it's a, a, more about the actual communication of ideas between different people, then the most productive stuff going on in the office can often be in the kitchen when people are just shooting ideas uh, whilst making a cup of coffee. And also that enables them to have contact, importantly, with people who aren't from their department or their core function. And uh, famously, it's it's those interactions beyond your immediate department that often catalyze genuinely original ideas. Um, so, yeah, it, it depends on the role, but definitely I think a mixture of both. Like the mathematicians need to get out of their little cubicle uh, in order to communicate with other people to perhaps get more context in what, how what they're doing is going to impact everything as a whole, and vice versa. The ones who spend a lot of time chit-chatting around the water cooler, uh, you know, when they have a job to do on their to-do list that requires intensive, undistracted thought, then they need to find ways to get away from distractions. So distractions can be positive uh, and they can also be negative. The challenge is constraining the design of an of a office in order to allow both opportunities to arise. Michael, how do you tackle that from a design perspective? Because the history of office design is kind of paved with good intentions, right? Even cubicle culture arises in large part out of a program called Action Office, which was supposed to lead to all those virtues. It was meant to allow for more flexible work. It just so happened it didn't really pan out that way. Um, so are we any older and wiser now in how we can create spaces that enable those dual behaviours. 
we have to provide choice to people and they have to have the freedom to, to choose. And we need also people to be more aware of what their needs are. I think that starts already with education, right? So you, you spoke about Taylorism. And I think if you look at our education system today, it comes from the same time. It still focuses on content that is put in the head of people and then you test if it's in there still, right? If they can, if they can play it back instead of maybe focusing a little bit more on the type of skills that we need today to succeed in, in the modern world and in the modern workplace as well. And I think some of that is like being maybe more aware of what your own needs are, how to manage distractions, collaborate with others and build on each other's ideas. And I think at a workplace today, this is really about choice of places or it's about a means of being able to, to change and adapt the space that you're in to support that. So... One of the things that we're launching at the moment in the UK is this Flex collection. And it's really a collection of re relatively basic furniture items that come to life in the way they interact with each other. And teams and individuals can use these items to create zones for teams, to create some privacy for the team, but you can also create privacy for the individual. So the individual can be close to the team where collaborating is happening, doing focus work, but still being available for that team if the need arises. Because at the end of the day, it's not an either or, right? It's like both things need to happen. And I think individuals and teams will have to make choices and say, what's more important right now? Is it really for me to sit down and focus for two or three hours and get that thing done? Or is it okay for me to be interrupted for five minutes if the team has a quick question so they can actually continue their process? So the, the spaces at, at, at work that we need today are really about that flexibility and workers have to have the freedom to choose the type of environment that they need for the type of work that they're trying to do. You just reminded me of the Henri Poincaré story. He was an, an incredible mathematician and engineer, and he made huge contributions to so many different things. You're all nodding, so you obviously already know. But he famously structured his day in, a, in an unusual way. Between 10 in the morning and midday, and between 5 in the afternoon and 7 p.m., he his housekeeper was under strict instructions never to disturb him. Doesn't matter who comes calling, even if the house is on fire, you never disturb me during these times. And then the rest of the time he was more flexible he wouldn't be trying to crack his mathematical problems he would be reading broadly around the various sciences that he was interested in if people know that you'll never get hold of this person at certain hours of day because that's when they do their intensive focused work but then in Henri Poincaré's uh, case between midday and 5 p.m that's the time to go and tap them on the shoulder and say hey I was thinking about this thing and do you have any reflections on it you know da 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 da, da. Quite often the workplace doesn't allow that because most workplaces require people to be available to each other at all time. And, and my dad used to work for a big American computer company and the only solution he could find to get stuff done was to book a meeting room for one. Now, this was illegal as far as the American computer company was concerned. That he, if, if he'd been caught, he'd have been trouble for sort of misusing resources in that way. But he said, it, apart from getting in early before everyone, came, everyone else arrived, that was the only way he could get the real hard work done. And, and, and I think, you know, we can learn from Henri Poincaré and my dad. <laughs> because if you, if you create an environment where it's okay to be unavailable for, say, an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, but perhaps, you know, every day at midday, I will look at my emails every uh, afternoon, say, after 5 p.m., I will look again. But in those areas in between, don't expect a response. And obviously, in some people's roles, that's, that's not possible. But there are other people who, who could do it, 
but they choose not to, or they feel like they don't have permission to organize their workspace and their working time like that. Yeah, it all comes back to freedom. I mean, today some companies even have things called focus pods for those kind of things, so it wouldn't be illegal anymore for your dad to use one of those. But we've seen both solutions, actually. I mean, uh, one of the... Um, office developments that a lot of people complain about is the open plan office, right? And if you just look at the open plan office without any qualitative aspects uh, attached to it, it's like a terrible idea. It's like a being hyper-efficient, right? No, I don't have to pay for walls. Everybody in one room, you all talk to each other, great. And then everybody's wearing headphones, everybody's distracted. I was thinking that earlier. <clears throat> But then we've seen two, two ways companies manage that. On the one hand, you can then create focus rooms, right? So you can go to those rooms and the open plan office becomes more something of a light work, some email, some chit chat, you know, it, it's, it blends from the pantry into, into the workplace and, and back, so to say. And then you have workshop areas and you have focus areas, you have phone bots or phone pods or the likes. And then there are other companies that actually do it the reverse, that say, The open plan is totally quiet. You're not allowed to talk. Mm. You're not allowed to have phone yeah. calls. This is the quiet area for everybody. If you want to be loud, you go in a room. <laughs> so you don't go in the room to be quiet, but you go in the room. So as much as I like to say, um, you just have to buy the right furniture, we'll solve everything. <laughs> That's obviously not true. You also need the right culture in a company. A company that actually thinks about this and, and sets out some ground rules that can be negotiated between the people and iterated on to really improve how they work. And that goes back again to being reflected. You have to be conscious about how you work. And I think this is one of the things that's often not happening enough. There's no time to re reflect on how you work. They only focus on what they work on. Now, if you would do that in a Formula One pit crew, they would never do like a, a pit stop in two seconds, right? Because everybody would just focus on their thing and just trying to optimize that. Somebody has to look at the total system and actually think about how people work together. Playing devil's advocate, what's the role of the fiscal, uh, fiscal office today? There's a lot of the virtues we've discussed here, this flexibility, this ability to have different modes of working from quiet to communal. That's what technology is technology's proponents say it provides right so you have the dispersed office you can work from home in a different environment when you want to connect with people you can skype you can email you can phone in when you want quiet you're at your house you don't need to or co-working so what's the benefit of having this central physical space what does that still bring that technology doesn't provide at the moment technology can't do spontaneous chance meetings with colleagues you have to choose to dial into that call to skype with a bunch of people you need to coordinate it you, you can't just incidentally cross paths with someone and then and then have a chance conversation and, and that is critical so famously in the early days of pixar they took over del monte pineapple canning factory and um and and the the ceo at the time moved everything towards the middle. So if you needed to go to the toilet, you had to go to the central part of this huge building. If you wanted to get a coffee, you had to go there. Uh, you know, anything that you might leave your cubicle to do uh, would, would require you to go to that central location. So it meant that 
the, the techie people were meeting the legal people, were meeting the administrative people, were meeting, you know, everyone would converge there to increase the incidence of uh, those chance meetings, which catalyze original ideas or, or help you find solutions to tricky problems. Um, and then this borrows from an idea where Eli Lilly uh, came up with this incentive project whereby they had all sorts of problems. It's a big pharmaceutical company. Let's say they were having difficulties getting the toothpaste to go all the way to the end of the toothpaste tube. And the engineers whose responsibility it was to solve it had banged their heads and banged their heads and they just couldn't find a solution. So it was a website where they put these challenges out there and, and almost like airing their dirty washing to say, look, can anyone out there help us with, with these problems? And what they found was that routinely, if it was an engineering problem, then it was biologists and physicists and people from other areas of expertise that would solve those problems. When you get a fresh perspective, an outsider's point of view, they can often solve the problems uh, extremely quickly and easily. And it was so successful that it span off as an independent company and is no longer attached to Eli Lilly. It's continuing to offer bounties for any member of the public who can crack a problem. It's, it's a similar kind of phenomenon, I think, when you have chance interventions between people with different expertises within a similar, within the same environment, within the same business. You're, you're getting a little bit of that flavour of the sort of maverick outsider coming in getting a fresh perspective on a problem and cracking it almost straight away. I think in our case, we, we, we took that even a little bit farther uh, by a coincidence. We were planning to build a new innovation center in the U.S. just before the financial crisis. And the financial crisis hit, and it wasn't such a good idea anymore to maybe spend that much money. There was a, an old factory building next to our main building in, in Grand Rapids, and they already had a small area carved out as a little cafe in a learning space. So by coincidence, we actually put an innovation center with a learning space and a cafe in the middle next to each other. And that sparked actually quite a few interesting things. On the one hand, I think it had a lot of these chance encounters uh, that uh, Jack has, has just talked about. But on the other hand, it also had this kind of aspect of there was already learning happening. So there were a lot of people coming in and out. There were customers coming in and out. And so what we opened in Munich uh, two and a half years ago is basically the second prototype of that. We do have <clears throat> on all our floors in our innovation center some basic coffee machines. Some people say it's good coffee. Some people say it's terrible coffee. But uh, it's certainly not amazing coffee. It's not barista-level coffee. But if you want to have that kind of coffee and you want to have a nice kind of cookie or something like that, you have to come to the barista bar which is the one central point in the, in the company. <laughs> and this is where everybody meets. This is where all the customers go. This is where all the functions go that are in the public side of the building. This is where all the people go that in the IP-protected area. This is also where all the people hang out that do other kinds of work in the building for the Beagle, like, like facility people. You know, if you have contractors in, they might pass by there and, and eat something. This is where people have training that are coming from one of our sites overseas or from other countries. So it's actually, um, there are quiet days, but most of the days you meet interesting people just by chance. I think that system really, really works. And Michael, you're in an interesting position in one sense, because what we've talked about is the need for these spontaneous meetings, exchanges of ideas. 
but you're a designer. You're in the business of planning and creating systems. Um, it's an interesting problem to create systems that still enable spontaneity and those kind of chance encounters. One of the projects you've worked on is Rome, of course, which is, I think is an attempt to get at something like that. So maybe you could talk us through that project and some of the thinking behind it. I mentioned earlier this uh, flex collection, which is this assortment of tables, screens, uh, little stands, little interfaces, whiteboards that allow this kind of team collaboration, this focus work, and you adapt the space to what you need at that moment. And Rome is basically the easel on wheels, the digital equivalent for it, because it carries the Microsoft Surface Hub 2, um, <clears throat> which is obviously a Microsoft product, and we're in a partnership with Microsoft. So we were thinking about this aspect of active collaboration, of really like what Jack mentioned earlier, like you, you're standing up, you, you're moving around, you're pumping oxygen in your, in your brain, and you're collaborating in a much more active way. So you don't really sit down and just think. You're not a brain that is connected to a whiteboard. You're a physical human being. And in the same way, people interact in front of these touchscreens, interactive screens. It's just that the content's already super flexible. The content's hosted in the cloud. You can have it in your, on your mobile phone. You can have it on your notebook. You can have it on a big television screen. But it's hard. Before Surface Hub, it was hard to interact with the content in a collaborative way. And even with Surface Hub 1, you were still tethered to a wall because that device needs power. It needs to be mounted uh, in the right height. So Rome is literally setting that technology free. It's uh, putting it on top of a mobile easel that you can wheel around in the room, same to a whiteboard. So there's the digital version of that, if you will. I mean, there's a whiteboard app on it. You can do a lot more with it than just whiteboard. But just as a spatial object, there's a, as a similarity. You can rotate the screen. You can use it in portrait and horizontal mood, mode. It has a camera, so you can do video conferencing while being in the space. So you can literally have people that are remote at that moment with you in the space in front of whatever you might be looking at. And uh, there's also a version that comes with a battery. And that's quite cool because a big problem for technology like that is obviously the the umbilical cord. You're always <laughs> tethered to a power outlet, right? Yeah. So there's there's uh, no way yet to fully get rid of this. Especially when you put a touchscreen on a on, on an easel, it becomes quickly a frustration that you can only move it two meters. So uh, there's a version with a battery where you can not really work on a battery all day. It, the battery only lasts, I think, for about 100 minutes, if I'm told uh, correctly. But it's easily enough to unplug the device, move it to the other side of the room, maybe even to a different room, maybe even to a different floor if you need to, and just plug it in again. All your content is still there. And if you really need to bridge, I don't know, 15 minutes, half an hour, where you can't access power, you can still do that. So that was a super cool project to be involved in with, uh, with Microsoft. And I think it's adding exactly that digital element uh, to those kind of spaces. And from a neuroscience perspective, all of this is absolutely critical for a number of reasons. I think you were right to emphasize the whiteboard function because you think differently when you've got a pen in your hand compared to when you're typing. And it slows you down. Most people these days can touch type. And so you can actually produce words quicker than you can actually think of the concepts you're thinking of, which means people tend to write 
rubbish compared to when you're slowed down by having to physically create each letter with movements of the hand, it means that what you put down is more thoughtful. Another point that my brain was screaming as you were uh, describing Rome was how I often make the point when I, when I deliver these sort of science of creativity things that it's great that you've all come away from an out-of-office meeting because there's novelty involved in that. It gives your brain no option but to switch from sort of the left brain hemisphere running things on autopilot because you're in a familiar environment, you've done these things or similar kind of things many times before. And when there's a lot of novelty in your environment, there's no choice but for the right prefrontal cortex to switch on because that's how you deal with novelty. The way it's structured anatomically means that it gets it draws from more distant parts of the brain in order to make sense of the, the, the novelty that's going on. Now, the reason this is so vitally important is I alluded earlier to this concept of like there's a, a brain area that switches on at the aha moment, and that's in the right prefrontal cortex. By, by shifting your brain's sort of predominant governing power from left prefrontal to right prefrontal through novelty, you're getting the right part of the brain switched on that we know through neuroscience leads to these sort of creative leaps. In reality, it's your unconscious brain processes have been working on it. And then it's when that right prefrontal part of the brain gets a sort of foothold and a stranglehold on, on the overall governance of the brain that it pushes those solutions up into conscious awareness. Now, obviously, we can't, you know, from one week work out of one office and another week work out of another you know for most people working on a, on a yearly basis you can't keep moving offices but what you can do is change the arrangement and appearance of furniture within a building when someone's reorganized the furniture because the furniture lends itself to reorganization you can have someone cross the threshold into that room and be like oh my god everything's moved around uh, so it really lends itself to, to a genuinely innovative frame of mind I think all of this and everything we've discussed here today is testament to the impact and effect that environments have on people and their behaviours, right? Be they physical or digital. It shapes the way you interact. It shapes the way you think. I think we've now come to the end of our running time. Uh, so, Dr. Jack... <laughs> we'll do a sequel. Uh, Dr. Jack Lewis, Michael Held, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Desenio podcast. For more podcasts, visit desenodaily.com.